This episode is sponsored by Kendo UI. Kendo UI allows you to build better apps faster. They have a comprehensive library ranging from data grids and charts to buttons and sliders. Plus, you can use their components as plain JavaScript as well as in Angular, React, and Vue. They have a large collection of customizable popular themes like Bootstrap and Material. Go check them out at javascriptjabber.com slash kendoui. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Views on View. This week on our panel, we have Eric Hanchett. Hello, hello. John Papa. Good day, everyone. Joe Eames. Howdy, howdy. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And uh, this week, we have a special guest, and that's Miriam Suzanne. Miriam, do you want to say hi? Yeah, hello. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. Do you want to give us just a brief introduction, who you are, why you're famous? <laughs> Let's see. I'm a designer and developer. I started Oddbird with my brothers about 10 years ago. We do full stack development, have a few other employees now, mostly Python Django projects. And lately, You're running this with your brothers? Yeah. That's so uh, awesome. And you haven't killed each other yet after 10 years? <laughs> well... Uh, only one is dead so far. <laughs> uh, the rest of us are going strong. No, it's um, it's actually gone really well. So, you know, normally people start up a business with their brothers. They're like landscaping, you know. <laughs> yeah, we find it because we're two college dropouts and uh, one with a master's in religion. So, it seemed like a good team to start a web company. There, there you go. Why not? <laughs> Is that where Odd Birds comes from? Yep, that's it. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Very yeah, cool. so we've uh, we've started picking up Vue recently on a couple projects and really enjoyed it. And then I ended up talking at ViewConf. So I think that's why I'm here. I'm more known in the CSS world, design implementation style guides. So that's what I was talking about at ViewConf, integrating with Vue to build style guides. Very nice. And yeah, you said that Chris invited you and then, of course, he uh, failed to show up. So yeah, classic, classic Chris. <laughs> I know he, he was dinging me for professionalism a couple weeks ago. <laughs> anyway, uh, when have you ever exhibited any professionalism? Uh, I, I can only uh, do that in small bursts. So <laughs> and I can't remember the last time. So anyway, <laughs> so you guys do full stack dev. You do full stack dev with your brothers. You're big in the CSS world. Right, style guides, that sort of thing. Is that what yeah, I got out of there? Sort of, that's sort of where I've made my name. That's where you've become geek famous. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, to an extent, sure. Uh -huh. <laughs> I built a grid system at one point that got popular, and now it should die. <laughs> uh -huh. Okay, I, I want to hear about this because I think all of us have created something in an open source that was a great idea, and then like, two years later, like, oh. God, I wish people stopped making pull requests. Against and I need, I need a clarification question here on this. Grid systems are the CSS version of frameworks, right? For all of yeah. JavaScript, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody builds one. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. So mine turned out to be the first one that was taking the grid system idea and putting it in SAS uh, and giving more control over how your grid system is going to look. So more customization. And that sort of started a trend then of others taking after that. There were several others that came along that were built on that idea, but it lasted way longer than it should have. It's called Susie, got kind of kind of big in the SaaS world, and then SaaS got big, and so that sort of launched a lot. But at this point, I mean, really, 
by the time it was becoming super popular, I wasn't using it anymore. Just maintaining it at this point uh, with grids and flexbox, there's just no reason for people to still be using outdated grid libraries. Wait a minute. I don't know what those things are. I've been using HTML tables inside of HTML tables inside of HTML tables. Is that the right well, I, I assume you're careful, John, not to nest them more than five deep inside of uh, your Mozilla browsers. Only when I'm not double nesting iframes in them. Yeah. Yeah. What's important is that you have at least six different spacer GIFs. Um, you don't, oh my gosh, I remember those. You don't want to reuse your spacer GIFs, they'll get worn out. All right, to be very clear to our audience, to get sarcasm, just in case. <laughs> that was all sarcasm. Did dev in about 2002. Right? Yeah. Well, what yeah. was the name of that browser that uh, would freak out if you nested tables like more than three or four times? What was the browsers that were really popular back in the early, super early 2000s? What, Netscape? Uh, Netscape Fire. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it was Netscape. Netscape. It was Netscape. So Netscape, you couldn't nest tables more than like four deep otherwise the rendering would like grind to a halt it would just like churn up a hundred percent of your cpu and just grind to a halt oh man and, and that folks is why we call joe the god of call span <laughs> <laughs> well that actually it's interesting that ties into why grid systems came about in the first place and yeah. why those sorts of css frameworks became so popular it's because layout was such a nightmare and required so many hacks I mean, it was like when I built Suzy, the main thing that it did was add the like double margin hack and like any number of float hacks, how to take up the extra space when there's subpixel rounding and all that. It was just doing like 15 different hacks for you. And that was useful at the time. And now it's a different world. So Miriam, how much easier is design today on modern browsers than it was, you know, 10 years ago when you created Suzy then? OMG. <laughs> I mean, really, I started playing with grid and it can look daunting. It can look complex. The CSS grid spec, don't read the spec. Uh, the spec is huge and has a lot of power. But there are some great tools, uh, great guides out there that give you just simple ways in. And you can do complex layouts that were very difficult five years ago. You can do them in five lines of code now. And I really feel like we're all going to lose our jobs. <laughs> well, there's always going to need to have someone like you and, and me and, and us in the panel to be able to transcribe from the spec into to an actual right. design, mm -hmm. no matter how easy it is. Speak for yourself. They just keep me around to tell them that they're doing it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so, man, I'm, I'm really interested in hearing your experience with view and, and design. Like, uh, you said you're, you're getting more requests for view and doing more with view lately. Is that something mm -hmm. that you wanted to get into or was it more like the customers are driving it to it and if so how does design how does design work with you for you i would say it's something that we've been pushing towards more than a lot of our customers come to us without a specific request for the stack we recommend a stack to them based on their project and what we think will work well and what we do i mean we're not going to do a ruby stack when we've got all python developers mm -hmm. but we were we had been using Backbone Marionette for quite a while for our JavaScript frameworks. And we wanted to start looking at doing something more reactive, messing with the virtual DOM, being able to do DOM diffs, all that. So we were looking at the various frameworks. And from a design perspective, where I am an expert in CSS and HTML, I love that Vue doesn't hide them from me. I have direct access to CSS and HTML, and they look the way they're supposed to look. 
and I can write them the way I am an expert in writing them. Accessibility looks the way it's supposed to look to me. And then I also get the tools that I need to turn those patterns into components and do all that virtual DOM and start integrating all three of the big languages, HTML, CSS, and JavaScript into single file components without ever losing the syntax for any of the three languages. I just love that about Vue. And it looked organized and easy to follow to me. So that was a big draw. And I love when, I just love the word view, by the way. I love that about view. You know, <laughs> it just, just love saying the word view to, to people because uh, <laughs> it makes things fun. It's like, I used to know this guy, Hugh, and everybody always talked to him talking about you. So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm also, I've been friends with Sarah Drasner for a while. She was getting very excited about it. It was hard to ignore that. Had to look into uh, what this thing was that she was ranting about every every time she was anywhere. So, well, you know what I love about Vue so much is, you know, and I work with Sarah. She's on my team. She's great. Is that it seems to remove so much of the stuff that other frameworks in some cases have, and all the things that are around it that I can spend more time on things like design. So it's not so much to me that it it lends itself to design personally as it is that because I don't have to worry about some of these other things. Uh, I can just slide into coding and the coding just works and I'm good and I'm off and running. Now I can focus on things that are important to me like design and, and UX. Yeah, I think the other thing, I started like really diving into JavaScript this summer. Um, I hadn't done a lot of JavaScript before. I could basically read it, but I wasn't doing anything much with it. And I was able to build myself a view project over the summer on my own uh, that I was quite happy with uh, while learning vanilla JavaScript. And all of it just flowed for me. It just made sense. Recently, we're actually working on a React project for one of our clients because they did have a specific request of Stack. And I just, the files are a mess in my mind. I want I want these three blocks. I want the template block, JavaScript block, and then the CSS block. And I don't get that. No, not a big fan of the JSX in there? No. Uh, the way it all gets mixed together, I find makes everything just look like JavaScript. And I feel like the DOM isn't JavaScript. Markup isn't JavaScript. And there's a reason for that. Styles aren't JavaScript. And there's a reason for that. Mm-hmm. These languages have actually developed to be the best language for their task. We don't need to make them all look the same. How is it with uh, Django in the back end? You said you guys have Python. Any You just use that as like your API in the back end and then right. frameworks or React or Vue is in the front end then? Exactly. You just use Axios to connect, I'm guessing? That would be a question for somebody (laughs) that actually writes that. (laughs) (laughs) So that was funny when I was learning JavaScript, because I had written such complex SaaS projects, you know, a lot of it was very familiar. It was, you know, I know how to deal with objects and arrays and functions and loops and whatever. Like that's all, it's just the same, just learn a new syntax. And then I hit like API requests and I was like, oh, this is new. <laughs> don't do that in SAS. <laughs> nope. <laughs> Very interesting. Can you talk to a little... I'm going to change topics here for a second. And I know you, we briefly mentioned that you did a talk at ViewConf and on Agile design systems. So what is a design system? Yeah, I would say a design system is... That's a sort of an umbrella term that covers lots of different techniques for helping with design consistency across an application, as well as helping with communication between designers 
and designers and developers and designers and other stakeholders. So there's lots of aspects to it. So documentate, design documentation falls into that, just that communication part. Building component libraries falls into that. That's sort of like a enforcing consistency across a project, which comes with more advantages than simply everything looking the same. You also get like, if you've got a component library, you can bake important decisions about accessibility into the component itself. Uh, and you don't have to have everybody on your team learn all the minutiae of accessibility. You build components that are accessible and then everybody can reuse them. So you're able to abstract away a lot of these issues that you would normally deal with when writing code and put them into a little shared library that people can use. So those are the two main uses that we have for them. Um, but then a design system is sort of all of that together, having the documentation, having the shared components, having uh, style patterns that are uh, well expressed and can be used consistently across a project. Often design systems are also talked about as a way of handling multiple applications that should fall under a similar brand. So that'd be like a Salesforce lightning design system. There's a million Salesforce apps uh, that all use the same design system. Is material design like a subset of what you're talking about? Yeah, so material design would also be a design system. And I think people have built component libraries. I'm not sure if Google does itself. I think a lot of material design is the documentation side of things, uh, sort of the description of how the designs should be used, how colors are used. Um, I haven't dug into material as much. Mm. Did you do some stuff with Beautify then? I've played with Beautify briefly, mainly when I was writing that talk. A lot of the, uh, so Beautify, I think, takes material design and builds a view component library around it. Is that a correct understanding? Yep. Um, so I played a little bit with that when I was preparing the talk. That's not as useful to me because I've not needed to use material design on something, but it's it's a project that I would look at if I needed to use material design in a view project. It seems like a nicely done. What we were doing more of is building tools that would help you generate any design system you need. So because we're going from one client to another and we have to work quickly on a project, and get it ready for handoff and then hand it off to a, an internal team often. As a consulting agency, we're going from project to project very quickly. We don't have a dedicated team working on design systems. We just want a nice handoff. So we want the design system to be baked into everything. We want to be able to hand that off after moving quickly on a project. So that was this idea of the agile design system a design system that can grow and change very quickly and scale from zero to launch and then beyond without having a full-time team working on it. So for us, that was building tools in SaaS and in Django and uh, whatever other tools we're using where code documentation and the way we write code automates a style guide and a component library that everybody can have access to. Um, I'm a little curious with this kind of setup. Do you ever run into the issue where people assume that the component they have has all the accessibility and stuff baked in because everything else does, and then it turns out it doesn't? Well, uh, hopefully we're not handing them a component that we haven't baked accessibility right. to. If we do for some reason have that, hopefully it's marked in the documentation. I mean, design systems, I would say, fall apart almost 100% because of human error. 
or just not being right. documented. It was the first thing that I learned when I released Susie. Susie had no docs when I first put it out there. And and then very slowly I was adding docs to it and everybody was confused and nobody understood what it was that I had built. And then I realized that everybody was only using the features that I had documented. And I was like, oh, right. I don't think those are actually the best features. They were just the easiest ones for you to start with. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh my gosh, that is so true of every project ever. It's, yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> well, the best um, part is when they use the features you specifically don't document because you <laughs> don't want those to be used because they're like behind the scenes and they're going to be changed. And then everybody relies on them. My experience was just that if you don't document it, it doesn't exist. And I think that that's like core to a design system philosophy. A pattern doesn't exist if you haven't documented it. So you can't claim that you have style patterns if there's nowhere to find them. If nobody can learn them, they don't, they're not there. They'll disappear in a day. Yep. When you hand off the code and you obviously hand out, off all this documentation, is that how it works? I mean, obviously, you, this, this, this whole process, this whole design system that you're designing for your clients it's integral deliverable that has to be given to them. And you'll assume that they're going to be using that design and style guides for their project going forward. Yeah, we hope so. So people have often asked me like, how, how do we sell clients on this? And we kind of don't, we just build it and then give it to them. And then five years later, they come back and say, Oh, that, that was good. We had to do less upkeep (laughs) because we had all that uh, in place, but it is that a lot of it is, baked into the code. So hopefully if they're following our patterns in the code, the style guide just stays up to date. But then we also try to show them around the style guide uh, that's generated so that they can go look there, check for components, make sure they're not duplicating effort, all that. Yeah, I've worked at places where we've gotten code handed off with design guides and style guides. And then uh, it slowly erodes over time and less and less people look it up and see how they're supposed to do it. And then all of a sudden you got 10 different ways of people are doing things instead of using what was, was created for that purpose. I guess it just has to, yep. has to be something like built in to the designers and the developers that, hey, we have this system in place, we should use it. Yeah, that's why I sort of insist on this, like it should be baked into the code itself and not just a separate document, not a PDF that we're sending them that's unrelated to code. So all of our colors live in a single SAS map and you can always go look at that map and any any color that's added to the map will automatically show up in the style guide. Um, so if you look at the style guide and it's a mess, that's because your map is a mess. And if you look at the map and it's a mess, you know, the style guide will be too. So hopefully people then keep it clean, but we can't control that. One other thing that I want to jump on here, I really, really, really love SAS and SCSS. How do you write SAS or SCSS with Vue? So you can, in a single file component, you can just say style lang equals SCSS. And well, at least that was true in Nuxt. <laughs> it's still there, yeah. Yeah. You just made my um, life better. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it's great. And um, there's, you can have some files, if you have global files, like configuration stuff, like our map of SAS colors, mm-hmm. uh, you can have those either automatically loaded into components or or you can import them in each component as you need. Um, okay. And I love also with Vue that I can, for, for a component, I can with a single word, change it from scoped to not scoped styles, just depending 
I can, I have various layers of like global styles that don't live in a specific component and then styles that do live in a component, but I'm okay with it. I'm okay with a little bleed. Um, and then uh, styles that are explicitly scoped. What's the best practice for that? Um, I know that's, I mean, we try to, at our work, we try to keep all our styles inside each component, but then there's some part of it. It's like, well, maybe we should put some of this in the global, com- like our global styles. I don't know. Yeah. The way that SAS is designed or that CSS is designed, it's specifically attempting to solve this problem of how do we create global styles where we can write fewer styles and have them apply to more things. That's explicitly the problem that is being solved by CSS. We wanted to no longer write inline styles that are so narrowly scoped. We wanted to be able to create classes um, and basically design systems. CSS was built for design systems. Some of that API is limited with just uh, the selectors that we have and no other sort of namespacing, but that's what it's for. So in my mind, if you've ever seen Harry Roberts' inverted triangle, I think that's a good thing to look up, inverted triangle CSS. He's done several talks on that, and I use that similar idea, which is basically that at the top of the triangle uh, where it's wide, we want global styles, uh, configurations, um, we often at the very top of that triangle have lots of metadata. So SAS maps and variables and functions full of information about our site that don't generate any CSS at all. And those global config sort of live at a separate level. And we try to put as much information in there as possible um, because then that becomes the design system. That's what we can automate from those files define what the design system is. And then we have uh, a few layers of global styles, just what are our global defaults. That's where any sort of normalization would go, um, as well as then any defaults added onto that. What do links look like generally? And the idea of the inverted triangle is basically the deeper we get, the narrower we want to get, the less code we write. Uh, So once we get down to single file components, we're writing less styles in there and they're only the styles that are specifically narrowly defined for that component. And some of that is saying, okay, so we've got this brand color defined globally, but here we use it in a specific way. So in the component, we'll say how it gets used. And then I think of scoped as one level narrower. So it's down at the very tip of the triangle. I try to have as few scoped styles as possible, but I love the way Vue does scope styles. They don't become inline styles in some dangerous way. Inline styles are dangerous because you can't override them anywhere. They become sort of all powerful and Vue doesn't do that exactly, uh, which is really nice. So they stay at a, a little bit less specificity. Does that answer the question? Yeah, that's Too great. Yeah. That, that makes total sense. I think that's trying to figure out that how specific, you know, if you really should use scoped or not. I think it's pretty much we're using scoped everywhere. But yeah, just trying to not put too much styles in each scoped component, I think is is a great tip. Yeah, it's like anything that we can safely make generic, we would like to make generic. Because you end up with less code and more patterns. Yeah. How you would like approach this, I guess. And because I I, I just kind of fumble my way through styles, quite frankly. I love design, but I'm not experienced at it like, like Sarah Drasner or you are. But when I start building a project, I design my components, uh, I start with scoped, right? I always put my styles there. And then I 
take them out of scope when I start seeing them being repeated in multiple places. Uh-huh. And I usually then promote them to like a, uh, an import from mixins and SAS because I use SAS mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. So then I go to mixins for it, but then I also wonder where's that border between, okay, I just created a font, let's say, this mm-hmm. is the font I'm using, or maybe more realistically, a certain margin that I want to use around buttons. Instead of pulling that in and importing from mixin, when's the point where I should make that into a global style versus a mixin? Do you have any thoughts on that? Is your job search stuck? Maybe you're not getting any interviews with employers, or maybe you are, but no job offers. Or you may be new and not even know where to start. This is Charles Maxwood, and I'm releasing a new course and ebook on how to find a job as a software developer. The course walks you through the process of finding the types of companies you want to work for, getting their attention, and putting your best foot forward as the candidate they want. I've coached dozens of developers in looking for jobs and have been able to help several people find jobs within two weeks to two months. So whether you're new to development, can't find a great job that fits what you want, or are looking for remote work from an area without a strong tech community, I can help. Go to getacoderjob.com and sign up today. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard because we always have one-offs. There's no perfect design system with no one-offs. There's just no way to avoid that. And one-offs are fine. It would be ugly if we tried to make everything look exactly the same. My rule is generally the default gets the look that I'm going to use the most often, or it depends how hard it's going to be to override the default. So if the default's going to be really hard to override, uh, like it's the default requires too many lines of CSS and I'm going to have to override all of them. Then it goes into mix in. It goes, it gets pushed away somewhere, but if it's going to be easy to override, then it makes a great default style. So I'll often try to come up with defaults that are simple. My simplest option is the default and then I can override it with the others. Yeah. I find this, this is one of the struggles that I often run into it. It all sounds so easy up front of, hey, it's either scoped or it isn't. But then when you actually start designing it, you're like, okay, I just did that thing in seven places. I know yeah. that's not right. But then where to actually put it sometimes is a little confusing, you know? Yeah, I try to look through a design proposal uh, and say, okay, I see this thing being reused. Um, and if it's being reused, it goes somewhere global. And if it's not being reused, it goes somewhere scoped. Also reused, I should define that a little bit because there's a real difference between both of these things have a red border and both of these things have a red border because they are both errors. And that that meaningful connection makes a huge difference when we're maintaining the code because errors have a red border is a much stronger connection than, well, I need a red border over here and I need a red border over here also. Yeah that second one is likely to break the next time somebody makes a style change. But the errors have red borders. Errors are going to stay connected. Sorry. Yeah. It's like when somebody names a, the old adage, somebody names a style red. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Not a good idea. (laughs) Exactly. And those, that sort of utility class approach has actually become fairly common lately. And it has a place with things like a clear fix. There's nothing else. It's just a clear fix. We don't need to give it some other meaning. It's just a hack. There's a place for that, but it's a minimal place. <laughs> well, go on to those days, hopefully, uh, for new development paradigms like Vue and Angular and React, where we used to have this problem. Uh, here's a project I had not too long ago where we were getting asked the question of, wow, we need to split our CSS bundles up because there's a limit on how much the browser can load in a single file, which struck out to me like, there is? And 
we were we ran some tools against. It. I think Addy Asmani had a tool. Uh, I forget what it's called, where you can basically get rid of unused CSS. Un-CSS, mm-hmm. was it? And for us, it wasn't working because of the way we were using CSS, but it effectively would go through your files and eliminate anything that you weren't using. Right. But if you end up with four meg, which I think was the limit at the time that we were working with, that a file could be loaded in a browser of CSS, I think you have other problems too. <laughs> Thank God we don't have to do that anymore. Now that we have componentized CSS, and it's more centralized like that. Yeah, it's the nice thing about having CSS in components or some CSS in components. And, you know, if you have a global file that can also be loaded, that can be cached and it can stay the same and it changes less often. And then if you have component styles, you can compile just the ones you need for a given page and you're not loading all the all the code for components you don't need. Miriam, have you ever done like a CSS audit, like had to go back through your existing code base and just like look at all the existing styles and delete the ones that aren't used? John just mentioned a tool you could use, but I'm sure you've had to do that manually. How was that? Uh-huh. Yeah. Often that's somebody wants a redesign and, and nobody documented the initial code and you just have to go through and figure out what's affecting what and pull it out. Or I've often been brought in to do layout audits and fix the layout. And it's a lot of the same sort of digging through. Tools like that are super useful for just real quickly finding what's not used. But also, I will just delete a chunk of code and see if anything changes. <laughs> Depending on, you got to have a site that you can actually see all the parts of if you're going to do that. Because if there's hidden parts of the site, you might be deleting something you just don't see on the page. But yeah, it's uh, there's not a quick answer to that besides those sort of automated tools that will figure out what actually appears in the code base and what doesn't, or on the website. Switching gears a little, I'm kind of curious, because I'm terrible at this. <laughs> How do you decide on what fonts, how many fonts to deliver, make sure they're not overtaking the size mm-hmm. of the browser? Because often, quite frankly, I'm like, ooh, that's a cool font. Let me include that. And then I realize on mobile, the whole thing's like blown apart. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, the the usual design rule that you stick to no more than two or three fonts works out well for performance, <laughs> if you can uh, keep that rule in mind. I don't know. I always feel like all of these rules depend on the project. And if I'm doing an art site where I want 15 fonts, I'm going to have 15 fonts and I'm just going to have some more limits on who can load it. So there's really always trade-offs and it depends on the project what's going to be more important. But there's also trade-offs between serving the fonts yourself. How many different file types are we going to serve? Can we just do WAF2 or do we have to also support something that's running SVG fonts or TTF or, you know, how few files can we load? And then there's other advantages to a CDN like Typekit or Google Fonts. I often prefer serving my own, but we've been using Typekit lately on various projects and Google Fonts too. It's all just little trade-offs here and there. Um, Where is the font available? Uh, Where do I need it to be available? And how few can I load? Sorry, there's no rule. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe that's why I'm not good at it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm with fonts. I'm like, I go to Google fonts. I'm like, oh, this looks good. Yeah. I mean, I see some other sites using this. I'm, I'm going to load it. And then I know that tons of sites use Google fonts. So maybe that's fine. I don't know if it's cached more places. Or... Yeah. And we're joking around quite a bit about this. But in all reality, I remember actively working on a project that we got the entire site to be loaded in like 0.2 seconds. It was super fast everywhere on mobile and everything. 
Uh-huh. And then we added a font. And it just, it literally was like, you know, five seconds long to load this thing. We're like, and at first we didn't know what changed. So that's why I asked this question of, oh, geez, when you're dealing with slow connections or Li-Fi situations, especially, uh, I think you got to be cognizant of not just your, your JavaScript assets and HTML, but also your, your fonts and images too. Yeah. Be very careful of uh, inlining fonts with base64. That's generally going to be huge and be blocking code. So what, avoid what that. What is base64? So you can take a font file and convert it to this string format that you can put directly in your CSS. So it's taking the entire font file and inlining it to your CSS directly. Um, and it makes your CSS files huge. And it is not actually the fastest way to do things. It looked really, uh, people were excited about it because uh, less HTTP requests, that's got to be great for performance, but it didn't pan out. Don't try it. <laughs> um, <laughs> I use it. I use it in one occasion where I'm loading a single glyph font. I want just the uh, ampersand from a font and then I'll inline it because it's so small, but generally it's bigger to put it in the CSS file than to call it separately. But yeah, I mean, if you're using Google Fonts or Typekit or something, only only bring in the weights and styles that you need. Um, make sure you're not bringing in extra bold and extra light if you're not using them. Tricks like that can help narrow down also the size. Cool, cool. Yeah, I, I definitely, I've used uh, quite a bit of Google Fonts and some Typekit, but that's about it. <laughs> Do you want to tell us a little bit about what you're doing in Vue now? Yeah, so the... Well, we've got a project, a side project we're working on with the company that's uh, trying to handle collaborative writing in a new way. Uh, and I'm excited about that. That's been a lot of fun to play with. And I'm playing with page transition animation stuff that is easy to do in Vue and Nuxt because it's got built-in page transition tools, which Sarah has talked about quite a bit. You can go find her talks. Um, but then I started my own project. I wanted my own way to do slide decks. I give talks all the time. And I was giving three at the end of August in Argentina and then California and then Spain. And I was like, I want this to work the way I want it to work. I want to be able to embed demos easily. I want to be able to style it myself. I want to write it all in Markdown and pure HTML. So I started building a view tool that does all that. It reads my own Markdown syntax files and breaks them into slides and then throws them through a Markdown parser. And then embeds demos and also creates a separate page for each demo so I can link to them directly. And it was a lot of fun to actually get that working as my first JavaScript project. That sounds like fun. Yeah. What was the trickiest part of that? Well, trying to figure out exactly where the markdown should live and where it should be read from. I I went back and forth between... I mean, at one point, I even tried putting it in the environment, all my markdown in the environment variable, which is crazy. I tried using the Vuex store. That didn't seem quite right. Right now, I'm just reading it all as static files and generating a static site. I played around with whether they should be like a dynamic talk page that takes then a parameter from the URL and loads up the markdown from that. And that didn't quite work out because I couldn't generate the static site from it. So there was a lot of that, just figuring out exactly where, how this should be structured. Um, how I could also get, it was really important to me that I could get live reload as I'm working on a talk. So that was a big part of solving that problem was 
just where can I put these files that when I make a change to the file, I'll get live reload on the site. I got it working. So it works now. I call it a viewfinder. Well, are you going to open source it? It is open source. I haven't figured out a good way to separate the content from the structure in a way where I could like ship the structure and then easily add content on top of it. So that would be the next problem to solve where this the logic could be self-contained and shared in a way that is separate from the content. So if anybody has ideas on that, oddbird github account slash viewfinder, VWE, of course. Of course. Or That's cool. You, I didn't say, I said W. That's wrong. Very cool. You going to be speaking at any more conferences coming up? I'm speaking at Boulder JS tonight and a couple other local things this year. Then I'm going to be in California for Electron Conference in January. Nice. And uh, Smashing Conf later. Are there any um, really amazing, fantastically wonderful conferences you missed out on going to this year? Oh, um, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. <laughs> <laughs> Joe, you're so sorry. <laughs> there were several view conferences I was hoping to attend this year that I didn't get to. You might be referring to one of those. I'm very sad to be missing Clarity Conference right now. I think, was it Framework Summit that just happened? I was going to be at Framework Summit and I wasn't able to go. We totally missed um, missed having you that we would have been... Yeah. What, that's we would have sold probably another five hundred <laughs> tickets if we'd managed to get you. But. Sure, sure. Let's say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd love to come next year if you're doing it again. Cool. Yeah, we are definitely doing it again. I'm uh, I'm looking for conferences to book for next year. So cool. Let me know. How many um, conferences do you go to uh, a year, and how many do you to speak I, at, and how many do you just attend? I rarely go to just attend and the last time i did that i ended up speaking somebody dropped out and they gave me a half hour notice (laughs) nice which was nice because then they paid me to be there after Mm -hmm. i had thought i was paying but normally i do eight to ten conferences and then a variety of meetups just around here it's a lot of it's just helping promoting the business to the agency or yeah yep well yeah i mean i never talk explicitly about that but i do hope that my presence promotes the business <laughs> right all right well let's let's move into picks uh, before we do that uh miriam how do people find you online uh oddbird.net is a great way i'm on twitter at miri suzanne m-i-r-i-s-u-z-a-n-n-e and then oddbird is also on twitter find me any of those ways awesome All right. Well, let's get some picks. Do you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere, available from any device, uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat 
and enter DevChat in the How Did You Hear About Us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter DevChat in the How Did You Hear About Us section. Joe, do you have some picks for us? Oh, if I got picked for you, Chuck. Yes, yes, I do, actually. <laughs> uh, I picked this uh, on the last uh, podcast, JavaScript Jabber, but I want to pick it again just because I've been really having a great time. I started, I, I used to go rock climbing with my friends when I was a teenager 20 years ago, or possibly more than that. And uh, <clears throat> I really had a fun time. And then I got up to be a busy, busy adult. And recently I got back into it. I signed up with the local indoor rock climbing gym and started going with my kids who are now teenagers who are having fun. And my wife will come with me. And I just really enjoy the time and the challenge and just something, you know, very different from what I normally do. And so my pick is to get back into stuff that you enjoyed in years past that you haven't done for a long time because you are being a responsible adult. And so that's that pick. My second pick is going to be the TV show, which is is available at least on Netflix, Robotech, which is a cartoon from the 80s, one of the the first anime shows ever to be on uh, TV. It's such a fantastic show. I loved it as a kid, Uh, maybe because it had transforming jets that could have had something to do with it. But it was also a really interesting story as well. And there's a YouTube series, I think there's two videos on the history of Robotech, which is more about like toy history and licensing history and TV history than it is specific to, you know, anything actually about the story. But it was fascinating as well to see this because it was a Japanese show and it was licensed by an American company that was trying to bring it in. And the history that they went through and basically uh, it showed up that the three seasons of Robotech had absolutely, they were totally different cartoons in Japan that had nothing to do with each other. They just had... They're done by the same company, same animators, very similar style, and they strung them together. And when they read, when they dubbed all the uh, Japanese and English, they tied the story together that way. And it was super interesting to see that and just hear about the licensing deals and the troubles that they had and how it conflicted with Transformers as a toy. I was just fascinated by it. So if, if that's at all interesting to you, I highly recommend both the show and the YouTube. There's, I think, a couple of videos, The History of Robotech. Those are my picks. Awesome. John, what are your picks? Got two. One of them is an article I read today by Sarah Drasner, who keeps coming up in our episode today. Sarah uh, is awesome. She wrote in CSS Tricks this article called How to Import a SAS File into Every View Component in an App, which was, uh, I found that interesting. It was very simple to do, and she kind of walks through the steps. And in Sarah's great way, she makes it super easy and a fun read in about three minutes. So definitely check that out. That's one of my picks here, and the link is in the show notes. And the second one is, because I didn't have enough to do, I have another podcast that I'm running, and it's called Real Talk JavaScripts that we just started up. And Chuck has been great at kind of giving me tips on how to get things started. Uh, and the unique spin on this podcast, we can check it out at realtalkjs.com, is that we focus a little less on the technology and more about how you solve problems with uh, JavaScript, CSS, HTML, and anything else that goes in the webs. Maybe we can uh, have a show on fonts one of these days. <laughs> so those are my two picks. Awesome. And, and that's at realtalkjavascript.com? Realtalkjs.com. Realtalkjs.com. All right. Eric, what are your picks? Yeah, I have two. One is this library I've been using. It's actually a CLI. It's called AWS Amplify. So 
One thing um, that some people have trouble, troubles with is Amazon, deploying to Amazon, adding authentication through Cognito and, and everything that goes along with that. So this new library, it's not really new, but it's newish uh, kind of tool makes it really easy to deploy your code. You can do it right from the CLI. It'll help you generate your S3 buckets, your Lambda functions. It has a, a lot of cool features to get up and running. Some people have said it reminds them of some of the tools that Heroku and Nellify use to do deploys and things like that. So you can do it right on the command line. It kind of generates everything for you. Uh, it also has all the Amazon Web Service goodness. So you can get up and running really quickly. You don't have to go and, and figure out how to create an S3 bucket or how to set up Cognito. It can just kind of give you some sane defaults and set up everything for you. So I'm really enjoying using that. And it has libraries for Vue, React, and Angular. So you can just kind of pop it into any of your projects, run Amplify and Knit, and then kind of get going right away. So that's, that's under aws-amplify.github.io. Uh, my second pick is uh, I'm a Whovian. I'm a Doctor Who fan. Season 11 just started with Jodie Whittaker. She's the 13th Doctor. So if you're a Doctor Who fan or have never watched the show at all, never watched the Modern Who or the classic Doctor Who, this is a good time to start because it has this new series has a new Doctor. It doesn't have too many tie-ins to the old series. You know, it's great. Hey, Eric. Yeah. Is the Whovian, is that also the same name they apply to people who really, really, really love uh, Whoville by Dr. Real? Seuss? Yeah, I'm, I, I'm not clear on that. <laughs> I don't know, but that, that probably. <laughs> or the who? The, uh, but anyways. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's cool series. So sci-fi, British. Check it out. Nice. I, hey, I haven't watched it in a while. Yeah. Hey, I need to jump in with one more pick. Go ahead. I forgot to pick. I recently picked up a copy of Herrick Hanschett's new book, Vue.js in Action, which is pretty free. I managed to get it to secure a signed copy, which was really, I mean, now it's a collector's item. And I know everybody out there is going to be like, I'll give you 500 bucks for it, but sorry, I'm keeping it. But nonetheless, I actually want to add that in as a pick. It's a really great book, really well formatted, really well put together. I've enjoyed uh, the parts that I've, read so far i haven't gotten through the whole thing yet of course but why uh, do i see eric handing joe some money right now <laughs> <laughs> he's trying to buy the book back there was no there was no yeah yeah my signature is worth far too much i need it back uh no i need no to check dollars. that out i didn't uh, realize it's out i have to check that yeah. out yeah yeah it's it's out and it's it's what's what i really like about it is it's not actually a huge book uh, what is it a hundred and three hundred well it's it's over 300 pages is it over th it's, well it's like it's, it's about 300 pages. Maybe it just feels so much more digestible. Right? It's all pictures. So it's all pictures. <laughs> like, just Joe's I copy. I feel like most textbooks, if, they, if I see these big, huge, like thick, like two inch thick textbooks, I get so overwhelmed. And so it's actually a really reasonable size. I felt very digestible. It's, you know, going through it goes through at a really reasonable pace. So I don't know. Anyway, that's one more pick for me. Thanks, Joe. Nice. I'm going to jump in here with a few picks. So I, I got some stuff in the mail and uh, I'll probably hold some of it up for the camera. But uh, Joe was talking about stuff that he did in high school. And one of the things I did in high school was Dungeons and Dragons. Of course, I used to play with Joe until he changed it to a night I couldn't come. I think he did that on purpose. Um, but anyway, uh, so yeah, I ordered some stuff. I've been playing with my brother who's poor. And so he doesn't have all the nice stuff that Joe has to play with. Um, so I ordered some of it. So I've got this mat with uh, markers. 
that uh, anyway, it's a grid map, so you can draw maps and stuff like that. Uh, I think it'll make playing the game a little easier because <laughs> we can visualize what the room looks like. Um, I also got a whole bunch of little figurines that are also on the floor here next to me. And um, yeah, it's it's just been fun to get back into that and play it. Um, it was fun to play with Joe too, but he doesn't like me to come anymore. So um, it just, it, yeah, anyway. Oh, Chuck, 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 Chuck. Yeah, we miss well, you, my friend. We miss you. Yeah, it, it, it was nice when we were friends, but <laughs> if you don't want to be my friend anymore, I, I, I guess I understand. So anyway. somebody took their GI Joes and went home. That's right. <laughs> anyway, I also have been reading this book called Extreme Ownership, and it's by Jocko Willink and uh, Leif Babin, and uh, they were uh, officers in the Navy SEALs, and they talk about. Um, some of the lessons they learned being in leadership in um, Operation Iraqi Freedom, and then they apply it to um, being a leader in business. So whether you're a manager or own a company or some stuff like that. And that has really uh, kind of opened my eyes to the, the possibilities that I have. And um, I've been kind of taking responsibility for a lot more of the stuff that I've had um, on my plate for a while. And that has really made a difference for me. So if you're in a leadership position of any kind, I highly, highly recommend the book. Miriam, what are your picks? Well, let's see. I didn't prepare this, but just going off of what you've said, sounds like I can do a TV show, in which case I highly recommend mm -hmm. Pose on FX. Uh, everybody should be watching that. And if you're going to bring up Dungeons & Dragons... Wait, 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 wait. I, I want to hear more oh, about yeah. the show. Pose? Just like you, the, the teaser trailer doesn't give me enough. I need, I need yeah, a Yeah, okay. Do they call so, watchers posians? <laughs> no, also Whovians. We also use Whovians for that. Oh, there you go. <laughs> um, it's a it's a show about the uh, '80s New York ballroom scene, which is not ballroom dancing. It's a queer subculture that's been going on in New York uh, for quite a long time and hasn't gotten nearly the attention it deserves. And it's the show with the biggest queer cast you'll ever see and mostly women of color. It's a fantastic show. It's a lot of fun. And it's all about this trans drag culture going on in New York. Highly recommend it. And if you're going to bring up D&D, a friend of mine who's a game designer just sent me the playtest version, not yet published, of his game Visigoths versus Molgoths. So I'm excited to see what happens uh, in a role-playing game of Visigoths and Molgoths. Cool. Well, hopefully that's out soon and people can go find it. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap up the show. Thank you, Miriam, for coming and uh, sure. enlightening us on design systems. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yep. And uh, we'll wrap this one up. We'll catch everyone next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.